0: Week three of Baywatch, we're talking about sex and dating and marriage and singleness and all that kind of stuff. Um, A very hot topic. There we go. Whoa. Okay. Okay. Uh, And and so here's what I want to do is let me just very quickly give you a review of what we have talked about, and then we'll move forward, all right? So last week, if you weren't here, we started to talk about the purpose for marriage and for sex and sexuality, and we came up with five purposes, and they all start with P, so you can remember them. The first one was partnership, that God made men and women uniquely different, but uh, equally equal in value, and so the two of them come together like this complementary pair, and, and they both reflect God's image, right? So that was one of the things that we talked about, partnership. And marriage is this covenant, a legal binding contract that's intimate and is is supposed to be reflective of our relationship with God. Now, the second one, and I am not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I think this one is pretty obvious. The purpose for marriage and sex, one of which is uh, pleasure. God designed sex and marriage to be enjoyed. He wants us to enjoy it a lot and have it often in the right context. Where's my wife? Did she hear that? Hello, Amy? No, often? Did you hear it's in the Bible? Okay. Oh, she's like, we got enough kids. We don't need more kids. Less often, probably, but we learned. That sex is fragile, that it is something that should be practiced in the safety of marriage. It's not a consumer good, it's something in which um, it is a, a token of giving your whole life, and it is a representation of giving your whole life to somebody. You're exposing your whole life emotionally, financially, and of course physically. And then we talked about procreation. That's how kids, that's how babies are made, right? In Genesis, it talks about go to be fruitful and multiply. Go, have lots of babies, fill the earth. Um, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be incredible to be parents, and so go and be parents, and we get to be co-creators in that sense with God. And tonight, let me give you two. I'm gonna focus on the the second one. So the the two of the new ones are one, prosperity. Is marriage is a way for you to prosper? And it's a way for you to prosper in all different areas of your life, but it is a way for you to prosper financially as well. And so statistically, this is true, is if you want to be someone who is above the poverty line, especially here in the Western world, you only have to do a couple things. That's how great where we live is. 98% of people who do these things, they end up being above the poverty line. Of course, uh, a lot of them are are much much further above the poverty line, is graduate high school, don't have a child out of wedlock, keep a job, get married, and stay married. That's it. That's what it takes to be fairly successful in the United States is to do those things. And so marriage, of course, especially if you have a child, um, it is going to be one of the things that's going to be key to prosperity and it's also really good for kids. Is Study after study shows that if you want to have a kid who thrives in life emotionally and relationally, financially, educationally, it needs to happen within the context of a two-parent household. Now, that is the ideal. Of course, there are things that happen, and that doesn't necessarily, but if we're trying to talk about what is best for children, that is the best context for children. So, to talk about the last one, I want to kind of go around about a little bit, because I want to look at two verses, and these are two verses written by the Apostle Paul, and if you don't know, who Paul is. Paul was the guy who kind of had an interaction with Jesus. He literally knocked him on his butt. He used to persecute Christians. Then he became a Christ follower, and then Jesus um, used him in order to tease out theologically what it meant to be a Christian, all right? And so we're going to see him address this idea of marriage and singleness, because here's my guess. The large, large majority of you in here are single, and yet a large majority of you want to be married at some point in your life. And so I want to talk about what does it look like to be a single Christian? What does it look like to be a married Christian? And what do we do in the in-between? And so he's got these two passages, and I won't read both of them because they're kind of long, but I'll give you some highlights. And they seem to be in tension with one another, is he seems to be saying one thing in one passage and then saying the exact opposite in another passage. And so there's a famous verse in Ephesians 5, and it's where Paul talks about marriage and what it looks like to have a Christian marriage. And he highlights these few things. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, this can be taken in, a, in a different ways by different people. Tonight, we're not going to get into it because there's different views on what exactly this means. But right after that, he says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And so there is this mutual love and submission that happens here and what, how that plays out in real time um, can be talked about at a, a, another sermon. And then he says, love each other like, you, uh, like they were a part of your own body. And so you guys are going to become one flesh, and so love your spouse as if you were loving yourself. And then it also says, leave your father and mother and become one. All right, so he has this ideal. Here's what marriage should look like. But then, in another letter, he almost seems to talk about marriage in a really negative way. So let me read it really quick. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 7. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound? Now, I love the terminology here, right? Are you bound to a wife? Ball and chain, bound to a wife, yes. Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. He is getting very negative about marriage here. He seems like he's had a bad breakup. And I would spare you from that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, this is very confusing. If you read this, you're going, Paul, I'm pretty sure you're telling me never to get married, which for most of us doesn't really resonate. I think most of us want to get married. Some of us, okay, maybe some days we don't want to get married, but it's probably something that we're going to pursue at some point in our life. Statistically, that's true. And so what is he trying to say here? Is he trying to say that we should get married? Or if we are married, just stay married. But it's preferable if you don't get married. And then he talks about the second coming of Jesus. Like, Jesus is coming soon, and so it's better for you not to be married because you need to prepare for Jesus to come. Now, Paul wrote a ton of the New Testament. He tells us a lot of theology. And if he was mistaken— where he believed Jesus was coming and that he was going to be a part of uh, the second coming in the first century, and he was wrong about that, that seems to be problematic. Paul's wrong about some pretty big issues, and so if he's wrong about that, maybe he's wrong about other things. But I think that Paul has a much more nuanced and, to be honest, um, sophisticated view of marriage singleness, and he views it from this lens of of history through a theological lens, I guess, is, is what I would say. So here's what I want to do is I want to see if we can understand marriage and singleness in the context of a theological view of history. Now, these are big words, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this sounds really deep. And I will be completely honest with you. I would never do this talk at our main campus because they're just like, I don't know, man. I got kids. I'm just trying to survive. I don't know. But I've realized through working through with young adults for a long time and being in my 20s and not, not that long ago, That in your 20s, you're willing to tackle the issues that you're not in your 30s and 40s and 50s. In your 20s, you're willing to wrestle with, and this is kind of why, you know, we're in college or why um, maybe we're getting our master's is because we're still trying to figure out our worldview. After this, I got to be honest, it's kind of set. You're just going to be on survival mode for a while after your 20s. But I've realized that young adults, they like to dig in and go, okay, well, you better tell me what this says, what this means, how this affects my world. And so I'm going to dig a little bit deeper than I probably would um, in our main campus. So here's here's where I want to start is I want to start at the very beginning so we can get this big view of history from a theological perspective. So it all starts with God, okay? In the beginning, God created. And so we see that God is the creator. He creates man. He gives man free will to choose him, to be in a relationship with him, allow them to um, um, be under his authority, or they can choose to be under their own authority. They can be their own God. They can be in charge of their own world. And of course, we know through the story of Adam and Eve, whether you think that's a historical or it's a, a, an analogy or metaphor, fine. But we know that at some point in time, man decided we don't want to follow God. We want to be our own rulers. We want to build our own little kingdoms, and we want to be the kings and queens of those kingdoms. And so we see this, this split in the world in which we have king, the kingdom of the world, which the Bible describes as the one that Satan rules over. Or we have this thing called the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of this world is the world that all of us are naturally born into. This is where the fallenness, the sin, our kind of corrupt nature, this is where all of that comes from, is we were born into a messed up, broken world, and we are born as messed up, broken people. That's our natural disposition. And if you've ever been around a toddler before, you know this to be true, is they are horrible little people. They're just a mess, right? They're liars, they're cheats, they manipulate, and they're born like that. They're cute, but man, they're bad. And it's because they are born as messed up little people in a messed up world, that's natural. But then Jesus comes along and he says, well, there was this kingdom that was the kingdom of God, and it should be the kingdom of this world, and it should, uh, I should be the ruler of it. But unfortunately, people have decided to, to run away and, and rebel against me. And so Jesus comes along and says, I'm bringing the kingdom of God to the world, that you can choose if you want to live in your kingdom under your own rule, this kingdom of this world, or you can live in my kingdom where I'm the ultimate authority. And the scripture refers to that as the kingdom of, of God. And so we see that Christ has now come into the world, brought this new kingdom. He is the king, and then he defeats sin and death as the king so that we can live in his kingdom. Now, of course, we still experience this because there is this in-between space that we live in. All right, And if you're not tracking, it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get out of the deep water in a second here. But there's this in-between place that we're at in which those of us who are Christians, we can live in the kingdom of God here and now, where he is our ruler, he is our authority, he is the one that we submit to, and yet we still live in a broken and messed up world, and so we kind of live in a a kingdom that is here, but not yet. We can live in a kingdom where he is our authority, and yet it is not fully here yet, because we still have sin and death and corruption, and so it is this already-but-not-yet idea. And so you get to decide Will you live in the kingdom of now, the kingdom of this world, or will you live in uh, the kingdom of God? And the people who choose to live in the kingdom of God, in this in-between spot where we get to choose, those people are called the church, Now, you may think of the church as a building, right? You're like, oh, we're at church right now. Well, that's actually not true. According to the scriptures, um, the church is the gathering of God's people. And there's this thing that's uh, referred to as the, the universal church. And this would be all believers of all time. So everybody who's ever believed in Jesus, whether past or present, those people are considered the church. And so all of this to say, to understand this next part, okay? The second coming, when Jesus finally comes back and he he, he finishes what he started, which is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. It's called this like inauguration where he's going to come and, and he's going to bring his will to the earth and all the people who want to follow him and submit to him will be uh, alive with him for eternity. This in between kind of has a or this, uh, this inaugurate, or inauguration has an imagery in the New Testament, and this is what I'm trying to get to and it talks about the bride and the bridegroom. And so if you've ever read your Bible and you go, what is all this church bride bridegroom business all about? Well, again, it's because it's a theological view of history. And so, um talking about the second coming of Christ and the bride and the bridegroom, you got to understand the context of marriage within the first century. So for us, um we do marriage like Maybe, I don't know, you date for a couple years, you're engaged for six months or a year or something like that. You get married, you move in together, and then you move out of your parents' house, hopefully, right? That's kind of the ideal is, is, is how marriage works here. But in the first century, totally different. What would happen is um, you would get formally engaged about a year before the wedding. And during this year, you would be getting prepared to be married, and so it was a legally binding contract. So like when you get engaged, that's it. Like you would, if you wanted to break that contract, you'd have to get a divorce from them, even though you weren't officially married because that um, the process has has begun. And so what would happen is there'd be an incredible amount of anticipation and, and waiting. And eventually you would get married. The The marriage ceremony would be big, could last like a week long. And then you would move out of she would move out of her parents' house, and they would move in together into the father's house, right? Some of you guys think that sounds horrible. You are correct. That would be a bummer of a time, but that's how the whole process worked, and so the analogy is this, is the New Testament talks about the bride and the bridegroom, and the analogy is the bride is the church, This is the believers. This is everybody. This is you and me. This is everyone who's believed in Jesus in the past. That's the bride. And then the bridegroom, that's Jesus. And so we are um, in a time in which we are waiting to be wed with our groom. Now, don't take the analogy too far. It's supposed to be about relational, nothing physical. Don't get weird about anything. But it is about a time in which we are in this in-between place in which we're waiting to be uh, united with our love. And so as believers, we're in this committed relationship with Christ. It's as if we are engaged to him, and we are waiting to be united with him. And the promise that he has made is the the death and resurrection on the cross. So whenever we get engaged, we give a what? A ring. Thank you. Yes, one person understood how this works. A ring. (laughs) Okay, there we go. I knew you could do it, buddy. You're going places. All right. You give, a, you give a ring because that is a promise. That is a seal. This is like, look, here is what I'm committing to you. And then here is um, a, a representation. Here is a promise of what's going to happen in the future. Well, the same thing happens with us in Jesus. Is As we are waiting for this day in which we are going to be united with him, he seals this promise with the resurrection and says, look, I promise that we will be reunited, and here is the promise, the resurrection, the first fruits. I'm going to be the first one to raise from the dead because you all are going to raise from the dead. And so we wait we're in this engagement period in which we are preparing ourselves for that day in which we will be united with our Savior. Now, all that is deep theology, all right? Now you guys are theologians. You can go out there. You could tell people what's up if you understood anything I just said. But let's get to the practical part. Because not only is this interesting theologically, but there are some really uh, practical applications of this theology in our life. In fact, I think every arena of our life is affected if we understand what this all means. Our, our finances, our relationships, our future plans and hopes and dreams, all of this stuff should be focused on that future day. So, have you ever been around an um, a, a engaged woman before? Like a bride-to-be? Have you ever hung out with one before? Wow! Now, I think an appropriate word would be that they are consumed, right? That they are consumed with that future day. That every day they get up and they are thinking about their wedding day. They're making plans. I mean, if it gets bad, once in a while they become what we call uh, bridezilla, Right? You know what a bridezilla is? They are a bride who has just turned into a monster because their whole focus is on that day, and it's really negative, and it's really nasty. I was reading, um, I was reading some articles this week as uh, I was kind of looking through um, for some, some, uh, some examples, and I came across some bridezilla stories, and it is hilarious. There's one, and I'll just tell you this one really quick. It is uh, probably the worst bride in human history, is she picked out all of her bridesmaids, and she got them all ready, and she, was, and she made some requests, and which is not a big deal, you know, you're like, here's what I want you to wear, here's what I want you to look at, all that kind of stuff, and you're like, all right, whatever, it's your day, we'll do it. Well, this one went above and beyond, because what she did was she had weigh-ins for her bridesmaids, and she said, yes, <laughs> some of you guys are like, yes, is... She said, look, I want to make sure that I am the center of attention because it is my day and some of you are too skinny. And so we're going to have weigh-ins and I am requesting that you put on 10 to 15 pounds before the wedding so that I look better. (laughs) Oh, yes. And you think I'm making this up? There is literally in the article a quote. Let me see if I, yeah, here's the quote. It's written that she wrote an email to her bridesmaids. Here's what she says. No one can be skinnier than the bride. That means Kelly and Lizzie will be on a protein weight gainer diet exclusively until May. I will have the nutritionist call you to discuss diet plans. Whoa, okay, yes, that is, whoo. And she scheduled weigh-ins along the way to make sure everybody was gaining enough weight before her wedding day. Which I thought, you should have had me in the wedding. I would have made that no problem. Okay. So, bridezillas. Um, sorry, that was a side note. It has nothing to do with the, the topic. But this, this anticipation, this, this being consumed, being totally focused on this future day, this, this being united with your love, um, it, it is a beautiful thing. And yes, it can get out of control, and we can even see this in the Christian life. It can become a little bit uh, uh, extreme. But I loved um, one one New Year's Eve when I was talking to my grandfather, and we were just talking about this coming year and what we're looking forward to and what's going to happen. And he just grinned as we asked him what he was looking forward to this next year. He says, "You know, I just really want Jesus to come back." And I kind of was cynical in that moment, and I'm like, "Okay, nice, Grandpa." <laughs> I think you'll see him before he sees you, you know, like you're getting a little bit older. It's just true. Like, you know, this is, hey man, it's real. And, and then I had to think about it for a little bit and I was like, ah, oh, you know what, dude, that's like, a, that's probably the attitude I should have, right? Because that's the attitude that Christians, we want to be united with our Savior. And so anytime that he can come back, the sooner, the better, And I think that is what Paul is talking about here is he's saying, you know, I don't know if Jesus is coming back, but every day I get up and I just, I hope that today is the day because that would be incredible because it's like a a, a bride preparing for her, her wedding day and she's so consumed. She's so excited. She can't wait. That's the type of attitude that we should have about being able to see our savior. And so the implication for those of us who believe this and are anticipating the um, anticipating Christ's return is that we should look at all the different arenas of our life through that grid through the anticipation of Jesus' return. now you may think, well that's ridiculous no, no, no. This is, this is kind of, this is the attitude. And if you've ever been in love, you kind of understand how this is. If you've ever been far away, maybe uh, for me, uh, I, I, Amy and I maybe will be separated for a week or two, just depending on maybe work or something like that. And there is something in you that is just so eager to see them um, that you're just overwhelmed. Well, that's what he's trying to get at. He's going, are you that eager to see Jesus? Because you should be consumed on a daily basis thinking about it. And your whole day revolves around, your whole life revolves around that moment. See, we get to the last uh, purpose of marriage. And we see that the purpose of marriage for those who are not believers, those in the culture, the, the kind of the the ethos that we live in would be personal happiness. And we talked about this a little bit is most people believe the point of life is personal happiness that I am supposed to get up every day and pursue happiness. And so whatever's going to make me happy, that's what I'm going to go after, including marriage. And so this shapes how you end up um, um, finding a spouse, because if you believe your life is about happiness, then you're going to look for a spouse that you believe is going to bring you the most happiness. And so you'll come up with things that you believe are going to make you happy. So guys are number one thing. She's hot, right? She's got to be hot. Okay. If I'm going to marry her, she's got to be hot and she's got to like sort of chubby guys. Okay. So she's got to be hot, but sort of like chubby guys. Okay. That's number one. All right. Girls, you're thinking, mm, I don't know. He's got to be rich. Okay. He's got to be rich. And so, boom, as long as he's rich and he's faithful, then we're good. All right. Or, you know, and you start coming up with the list of things you think are going to make you happy. And you begin to look at their, their wealth, their status, and it almost becomes like a way of merchandising yourself. Is the way that I'm going to decide who I want to marry and the way that you're going to decide who you want to marry is through these external external, external things that we have. And so I've got to sell me and you've got to sell you. And so I don't think it's any doubt if you've ever been out on a Saturday night, that's kind of what people are doing, Right? I'm selling you, you're sell, selling, selling me, we're, we're doing the swipe right, we're just trying to find out, do you, do you look like the picture of someone who would make me happy? But the Christians, they go, you know what, that's not the point of life. Personal satisfaction, the pursuit of pleasure and trying to become happy, one, I'm never going to arrive there, because it's not something that you can directly aim for. The other is, I think there's something bigger at hand. And so the Christian says, it's not about personal satisfaction, it's about personal sanctification. And that simply means, it's a, kind of a big theological word, Is it is about becoming more like Jesus. So my life is not about me being happy, my life is about me being more like Jesus and bringing as many people into a relationship with him as I can. And so when you begin to see that as the point of your life and the point of your marriage, you're going to start dating totally different. The person that you're looking for is no longer going to be the wealthiest, the best looking, the most well-connected, the successful person. Yeah, those things are all going to be on the list somewhere, but they're definitely not going to be at the top because you understand that your life is about becoming more like Jesus and making other people more like Jesus. And so you're going to start looking for somebody who is going to make you more like Jesus. So your number one qualification will go from they got to be hot to they got to love Jesus they got to go from, okay, they're, they're, they're an entrepreneur. They have goals in life to, well, they want to love Christ, and they want to make me more like him, and I want to be more like him, and they want to be more like him, and that's, that's far more important than whatever kind of achievements that they may have. And so you start running everything through a different grid because your aim is totally different. Um, Amy and I, through the years, and I would say that, um, that marrying Amy... Let me say this. I'll say this. I am not the best looking person that Amy could have married. I know that's a shocker, okay? I know that's a shocker that you would go, Cody, stop. Stop being so modest, Cody. I know, um, but no, I understand. I'm not the best looking person. I'm not the most successful person. I'm not the funniest person. I'm definitely not the politest person. I am none of those things. She could have done far better um, in all of those categories than me. But here's what I do believe is that she identified me as the person who is going to push her to be more like Jesus. And so she said, well, that's my number one thing that I'm looking for. And so yeah, you, you might be a little bit chubbier than I would have liked, or yeah, you might not have these kind of qualities, and yeah, you're pretty rough around the edges and we're gonna have to work on some things, but you've got the top qualities that I'm looking for. Is You love Jesus, you wanna push me to love Jesus, and you want to be faithful, and so those are the things that I care about until so you meet the top qualifications. The other things, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll wrestle with those things, and she has for the last know, some 10 years of marriage, 13 years together. She has really pushed me to become the person who God created me to be, and I hope that I've done the same for her, and so what happens is culture starts to look at your relationships and the way that you view your life and dating and even your finances, and they start going, you know, it seems like they have a different purpose in mind. Like the person who um, I would have gone out with is not the same person they would have gone out with. And I can't believe that they're not interested in dating this person because look at how good they are and look at what they've done. Why are they not interested? Oh, I get it. Because they have a different purpose in mind. Their life is directed at something different. And so your life now becomes a representation of the kingdom to the rest of the world. People go, you know, you live a different life. And I'm not sure if I'm that into it, and I'm not sure if I buy into it, but it definitely seems to be working out for you. If you fast forward, I'm 33 years old, and the other day I just ran into some friends of mine who I hadn't seen since high school. And what was crazy is, and I'm not smarter than them, I'm not more entrepreneurial than them, I'm not any of those things. And we started to talk about life and what's going on, and they're still doing the same thing. They were drinking a beer, talking about what they did last night, and I just went, whoa. There's nothing in me that makes me more uh, better than them. That makes it. It's simply that you know what I said yes to God, and here I am. I got three kids, I got a wife, and we have a house. And wow, that's pretty cool. Why? Because I had a different aim. They've been for the last 15 years living for personal satisfaction, and I've been aiming at personal sanctification. And we've ended up at two totally different places in life. Not by my my uh, my willpower or my own uh, strength. And so. When we look at somebody who we're thinking about dating, the first question that we should be asking ourselves is, are they gonna be a person who makes me more like Jesus? That's the first question. Are they a person who is going to make me most like Jesus? Because remember, the point of my life is not happiness, is not satisfaction. I do believe those things happen as we pursue Jesus, but that is not the single pursuit. And even when you're wrestling with, okay, am I supposed to be married one day? Am I supposed to be single for the rest of my life? I think Paul would answer that question like this. He would say, if being single is going to make you more like Jesus, then be single. Or if being married is going to make you more like Jesus, then get married. Whatever makes you more like Jesus and whatever helps you bring more people into a relationship with Jesus, that's what you should do. And so should you be married? Should you be single? I don't know. So let me end with a couple of practical, maybe applications of this. And this is for you guys who are dating, thinking about dating, maybe possibility, of getting married one day. But for if, you're, if you're a single person, here's what I want you to do. And this is almost contrary to what we've been um, taught in our life and in churches. See your singleness as a gift. Is Statistically, you're probably going to get married. At some point in your life, you're probably going to get married. And you will realize the years that you have being single versus being married you have a lot less years being single, and you're going to look back, and you're never going to regret getting married. Hopefully, you're not going to regret marrying if you do everything, uh, do everything right, but you will regret the time that you spent being single and wasting it, because when you're 18, 19, 20, 30, and you're not married, you have far less restriction, restrictions in your life than the married person does. So for me, here's what my world looks like right now, is um, do you guys have the app Find My Friends, Right? I use that 12 times a day, because I'm going, where is Amy? Because these kids are driving me out of my mind. I need her to get home now, and she'll be calling me if I'm out, she'll be like, where are you? You know you're supposed to be home right now. I I can't take a dump without having to tell somebody where I am, okay? That is just the honest truth. I sometimes got to leave the door open. I'm like, I see you kids out there. Okay, you know, like, that's my life, is talk about having strings attached, constant. And you're living a life right now where you don't have to worry about that. You're not telling people, "I'm going to eat after this." You're not calling, going, "Hey, is it okay if I stop by and get a Red Bull on the way home?" You're not worried about any of those things, and that's a gift, because you get to use that in order to one, become the person whom God wants you to be, because you don't have the restrictions, you don't have all the uh, all the responsibilities. But the other is, you get to pursue things that I wouldn't be able to pursue. So some of you guys just went to Guatemala. How cool is that? There's no way I get to go to Guatemala. I tried. Amy said, no. So you get to go and you get to pursue stuff. You get to go out and you get to, you get to do frontline ministry, things that I, I wish I could do, but I don't get to do. Don't waste the time of being single. Work on yourself and continue to push your faith forward. i got to be uh, a little caveat here is... Um, you may be single for a season. You may be single for a lifetime. See it as a gift unless you are single because you suck. Okay, that's like my little caveat there. Some of you guys are single and it's cool. You haven't met the right person. You're working on you, whatever. But some of you guys are single because you, you really suck, okay? That is not a gift. That's a curse. Fix it. All right, here we go. Number two. Now you're like, is that me? I think it's me. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, all right, number two. Here we go. Um... Number two, don't date non-believers. Oh, here we go. Ooh, in this hush over the crowd. Don't date non-believers. So think about it. Your purpose in life, to become more like Jesus. You date someone who is not a Christian, what's their purpose in life? Not whatever yours is. And so here's what's gonna happen. When you are a Christian, and you date and marry a Christian, your sole purpose and aim in life is heading in the same direction as theirs. But when you date someone who is not a Christian, Your sole purpose and theirs are heading in different directions. So one of two things has to happen. Either your relationship gets further and further apart because you're heading in different directions or you have to abandon yours in order to go in theirs. And this is why the scripture says, do not date or marry a non-believer because it will either destroy your relationship with your spouse or it'll destroy your relationship with Christ. It's going to be very difficult to be able to keep both intact and there's a, no um, dating for salvation, or we used to call it missionary dating, but that sounds kind of awkward, is, um, is you, can't find, so you can't date someone and go, okay, they have everything. <laughs> They're like perfect. Minus like, they don't follow Jesus yet. <laughs> I will fix that though. I will make them a Christian. Don't do, don't do that. That will not work. It has never worked before. What will happen is you will be lured into temptation, And so you will end up in a place that you never thought you would be. They will fake it for a while and come to church until you break up with them. Then they are just back to being crazy again. And you will end up with, I think, a lot more regret um, than you signed up for. Okay, third thing is this. Look for attraction in the most comprehensive sense. And so when we talk about attraction, the first thing we think about is physical. And of course, that is important. You are not going to date someone who you think is ugly. It's not going to happen. Some of you guys need to hope for that, but it's not going to happen, okay? (laughs) That's rude. Sorry. (laughs) I I just slid that one under to see if you got it. Like, (laughs) just kidding. All right. Um, (laughs) What is that? Yeah, okay. So, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. What, did I, what was I talking about? What were we at? Three? Uh, attraction. Comprehensive sense. Yes. Not just physical attraction. Of course, you need to be attracted to them. But here's the thing is, and you know this to be true, is physical attraction will not last forever. Amy and I, when we first started dating, I was 155 pounds. I am not that anymore. All right? She still thinks I'm sexy. Why? Not because I'm a, a 155 plus 157 pounds. It's because, it's because... She saw in me something that was even more attractive. She thought that, you know what, I like who he is. I like his character. I like his faith. And um, I like that she stayed skinny. So it's been great. Okay, number four. <laughs> yeah, just threw that in there. Okay, don't romanticize things too quick. Don't so. Last week we talked about don't get physical, but this one is more about the emotional side of things. If some of you guys are pretty good at drawing the line physically, and you're like, "Look, we're not going to go past this line. Here's where it is," but you have not drawn a line emotionally. Every week, there is a new person whom you are sure is the one. Oh my gosh, I love them. They love me. Next week, it's a different one this week, okay? It's a different one. That was the wrong one. This is the right one. Here's, here's what you need to do. You have to step back, and just like you draw lines, or draw lines physically in a relationship that you will not cross, you have to do the same thing emotionally. You have to step back and go, okay, I'm not going to get too attached. I have to guard myself, I can't just jump two feet in and go, okay, I'm in love. And I just don't care who knows it. You know, no, step back and build up a little barrier. Some of you guys, your barrier is too tall. Let's bring it down. Let's uh, right here. Okay. And let's observe for a little while, not in a creepy way. You got to know them. Okay. You got to be interested in they're interested in you, but you got to observe them for a little bit. So Amy and I did not date for um, the first six months that we knew each other because I just wanted to see who she was. And I didn't want it to be in the context of anything romantic, because you you fake it, right? Oh, I love my mother. You're like, no, you don't. You have such mom issues. Are you kidding me? No, no, we totally get along. No, you don't. And I would know that if we're friends first. If I get to hang out with you, I get to see you interact with your family. I get to see who you are on a Friday night when you're not trying to impress me. I want to observe for a little bit, which is great in a community like this is you get to hang out, you get to do some ministry together, you get to attend church together, you get, to, you get to go, all right, let me see if you're real or not. And then when you do start dating, it's not then like, okay, and we're good. It's still like process where you go, all right, I just need to still find out if you're the one and if this is going to work or not. And so Amy and I dated for um, two and a half years and then engaged for six, so three years total because I wanted to be sure and she wanted to be sure. And we wanted to make sure that we kept that emotional distance before we got married. Okay, um, I'm going to run out of time, aren't I? What time is it? i got seven minutes, oh my goodness. Okay, uh, number five, submit to community input. So this, we live in an individualistic society, and everything in you says, this is my romance, this is my life, you can't tell me what to do, mom and dad, you're an idiot. Well, here's the deal, is your, your dating life should be communal. And what I mean by this is, other people should be able to speak into your relationship, because you're too close to that person. Have you ever gotten close to that person and you're so close you don't, you don't see their flaws anymore? You just go, I'm just in love, oh my goodness. But someone over here is going, how do you not see that? They're, oh gosh, that's a mess, right? And so you need other people who are gonna speak truth into your life about this other person and your relationship. You guys, you guys got too much drama, you're fighting too much, I don't see this working out and you're just going, no, but I just, I can't live without him. Oh my goodness, I can't live without him. no. Let other people speak into your relationship. People you trust and you admire and you think, you know what, they're probably going to have insight that I'm not able to see. Let them speak into your relationship. Okay, real quick, last two. Um, Don't make an idol out of marriage. Marriage is incredible. Marriage will not save you. Marriage is super fun and it is one of the best things that you could do with your life, but it's it's not going to heal you. It's not going to make you better. In fact, it's going to magnify all the good and the bad in your life. And so don't make an idol out of it. it won't, it's not going to get you to heaven. Only Jesus is going to be able to do that. And so whether you get married or you don't get married, do not think that this is the ultimate aim in life. Realize it is good, it is a gift, and yet it is not the ultimate. Okay, last one is this. Um, and this is, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks again, but I want to start the challenge now, and I do this every year. If you are a person who has uh, had a boyfriend or girlfriend since junior high and you've never been single, or you're a person who, you know what, I've messed up sexually, I've had some pretty, um, some pretty destructive relationships, I used to live with this person, I'm living with this person, I've made some mistakes, I, you know, I got some emotional stuff that I haven't dealt with yet, here's what I want you to do, and, I, and I've, I've given this challenge to hundreds of young adults, and so many have taken it, and I've never heard one person come back and go... I wish I hadn't done that. Take a year off of dating. Take one year, put it on your calendar and say, I will not date for an entire year because I need to get right with God. I need to wrestle with some stuff. I've made some mistakes and I don't think I'm I'm prepared for that. Take a year and what's going to begin to happen as you take a year off is there is going to be a fog that is going to clear from your life. Because you know automatically, I'm not going to try to impress anybody. I'm not looking for anybody. In fact, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff because I've taken a year off of dating. I've committed to this. And so I'm just going to work on me for a year, me and Jesus for the next year. And you will begin to see change that happens. Because before, what you used to do is you would suppress that stuff with the next relationship or with that pleasure or with, and when you take a year off, you have to start dealing with that stuff. And you start getting more clarity on yourself and on your future and on your relationship with God. And here's what I think happens at the end of this year, and I've seen it in so many people, is you will take a giant step forward in becoming the person whom God made you to be. And guys, this is just a side note for you, is I have heard so many young women talk about how how many losers there are in the world. Like there's just no good guys out there. And so if you do become one of those good guys, whew, you're going to have your pick, okay? Just a little motivation that there aren't that many out there. So if you become one, it'll make up for being chubby. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, uh, we thank you so much for uh, for for the good gift of marriage and sex and and dating, and all that, and all the complications that go along with it, and just like all the other good gifts in our life, we we confuse it, we misuse it, and sometimes we make a mess of it, and so we just want to get back to what your purpose was for us, and for marriage, and for sex, and for dating, and for all those things, so that we can fully enjoy the gift that you have given us. And so, Lord God, if there's people in this room who have made their mistakes, um, I just pray that they would feel your forgiveness as they repent, and they turn away from that stuff, and maybe they take a year off, or if there's people who are just going, am I ever going to find that person, that they would just see this season or maybe even this life uh, life stage as, as a gift, that they get to pursue you in a unique way that they may not get to in the future. And so, Lord God, we celebrate it. We love you. And we pray. Amen.